Today's podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit DavenantHall.com and hear more at the conclusion of this podcast. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, located in the breathtaking Shenandoah Valley. And I feel sorry for anyone who does not live here. Now, normally I am joined by my friend Carl Truman. Today, though, uh, Carl is uh, uh, not able to be with us because he is traveling the world. Uh, Carl lives a very cosmopolitan life, only you know, only the kind of life that a best-selling author uh, can afford. And so he's jet-setting about Europe and uh, uh, all points uh, glamorous, I'm sure, and just being a man about town in places like Rome. Uh, so, Carl, uh, our best wishes to you. But what's great about today and about this particular recording is that I think Carl would have only been an encumbrance uh, to the discussion. I think that he would have probably just proved to be um, a distraction. Um, we have uh, with us uh, one of our favorite guests. He, he keeps agreeing to come back, which you've got to respect any man who takes these sorts of risks. Um, but our guest, once again, is uh, Michael Allen. Now, Michael Allen is uh, a professor of systematic theology. He is the John Dyer Trimble Professor of Systematic Theology at Reform Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. Michael, great to have you with us. Good to be back with you, Todd, and glad to do my best to help you make your way along without your sidekick. <laughs> I appreciate that. I I had thought about maybe faking a Scottish accent because I know that the whole English <laughs> accent thing, that, that sort of thing gets Carl all kinds of opportunities that he otherwise wouldn't have if he spoke like you and I did, but such is the way it is. Um, now, Michael, first of all, this is um, early March. What's the weather like in Orlando these days? Is it is it ninety degrees with ninety eight percent humidity, or you know, because I know it's not summer yet, so it would still be cool. It's 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 been unseasonably warm this week. Today, I believe the high is seventy eight degrees. It's sunny. Wow. Yeah. So that, it's, that's not it's, bad. It's been a warm stretch. We're we're okay. going to cool off in a couple of days again, and it'll bounce back and forth. Mm -hmm. But. Mm -hmm. Keeping the mosquitoes at bay, or uh, yeah, well, it's good for all of us cold-blooded creatures. So, right, that that's true. It helps. That's a good point. Now, Michael, recently you have um, uh, written two books that have recently been uh, released. Um, which, by the way, I just got to you know you got to give it up for a man who who releases two books simultaneously. I mean, Michael, I don't know if this is some sort of a scheme that you have with the publisher to, uh, you know, but first of all, just in terms of you, because you, you're going to want to plug these uh, titles into Amazon or whatnot. But uh, uh, the title of the books are, first of all, The Knowledge of God, Essays on God, Christ, and the Church. The second title is The Fear of the Lord, Essays on Theological Method. Um, 
And when you look at them, you may first see the price of the hardbound cover. Um, don't let that discourage you, people. Just don't let that discourage you. Scroll over to where you see the soft cover, and uh, and it'll make uh, all things all things better for you. Now, first of all, Mike, uh, two two books at the same time. I'm impressed. Um, was there a strategy behind this? Uh, it, it's working for Cormac McCarthy doing the two novels oh, at once. No so kidding. why not, right? Yeah. Um, no, I'll, I'll confess, both of these are volumes where I'm pulling together stuff I've written over the course of a decade and a half. Mm -hmm. There are new pieces in there. There are some things that I'd written when I was still a PhD student. Yeah. and published in journals that that no one will find. Sure, sure. But I, I sort of observed there are kind of these two threads of reflection, mm -hmm. and the publisher was was happy enough or crazy enough to, to go for two at once. So one is a volume uh, that's, that's really on theological method and a bunch of different facets to what it means to practice theology and to grow as a theologian. The other was a string of reflections that are connected along the lines of thinking about God and then in light of God, thinking about Christ and church. And uh, they just seem to connect and intersect in various ways, and, and hence the two books. And the titles come from Proverbs 2, where the person who fears the Lord is given the gift of the knowledge of God. And uh, so that's the vision. Right. Um one of the things that we've talked about in the past is um, the necessity, particularly among Protestants, to do some theological recovery work. And you're one of the guys that's out there helping us do that. Now, when we talk about theological recovery, and we talk about primarily in, in terms of the doctrine of, of God, um, it's been interesting because there are several of you guys that are doing great work. You know, there's there's you, there's Scott Swain, there's, there's Matthew Barrett over at Midwestern Theological Seminary and others who are doing some really good work. On, on the subject, really going back to the first five centuries and 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 reminding Protestants where where we come from in a way. Um, and what's been interesting to see is as that discussion has advanced and, and and become influential, and we're glad to say so. There has been um, from certain uh, circles. Some of them are from the Reformed ish world. Um, who have pushed back. Um, they've registered fears about um, Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian and philosopher who himself was doing recovery work. But uh, kind of you hear some of these charges against doing metaphysics, um, against um, philosophical theology. Um, this is the province of Rome. And, you know, are these guys taking us into a papal direction, et cetera? And some of them get a little shrill um, about it as well and and here here's part of the thing that's curious to me and tell me if i'm kind of off track when i read what some of these guys are cautioning against mm -hmm. i i hear uh, some some kind of bardianism in there in that don't yeah. don't think about god apart from kind of the economy of salvation and you know this of course for those in our audience that might not uh carl bart neo-orthodox um highly influential theologian um but you know one that that reformed evangelicals would have some issues with uh, but 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 he was highly suspect um well beyond suspect of metaphysics 
you know, you only need to re really be doing theology in connection with how God is revealed in Christ in his, in his redemptive work. So I think it's just a, a curious thing that I hear some really ultra conservative Baptist guys, in my opinion, almost sounding like, like Bart, what's your assessment of some of the pushback that this new project of recovery has been getting from folks that are at least, um, you know, loosely connected with some of the categories that, that we find ourselves in, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting connection. Uh, you know, Bart talks about the importance of the language from the prophet Isaiah, seek God where he may be found. So his worry is speculation where God hasn't made himself available to be found. And there's a good impulse there, of course, that uh, we do want to be mindful, uh, and it's a, a reform trait to be especially alert to the danger of the, the idol-making factory within each of us. And so scripture is essential. The catch is that we are not necessarily natively better with scripture than we are with reason. <laughs> right. Because our sin and our struggle, both what we bring by nature in Adam as well as how we've been malnurtured, mm -hmm. they both impact my listening to scripture and doing yeah. so well. And so one of the ways I would I would suggest people think about retrieval or recovery is that that really at a, a base level, this is about us trying to learn how best to listen to scripture. Mm -hmm. to think not just about the surface level of this or that verse, but how we hear this verse along with that echo, mm -hmm. this passage along with that prior text, this gospel alongside that other witness to Christ, yeah. uh, seeing that as we, we read across the Bible and we read through the Bible and we read backward from Jesus into the Old Testament, we start to see more than would be immediately apparent to us. and. Mm -hmm. And that's something, if we're honest, for a lot of reason, modern scholarship is, is less intuitive about. Hmm. And that's something that, that earlier Christians were much more attentive to. There are reasons for both of those things. And of course, there are exceptions. Yeah. But, but one of the things we want to go to, the great figures, whether it's Luther and Calvin, or it's Aquinas and Bonaventure, or it's Augustine and Maximus, whomever it may be, is how do they train us to read scripture attentively, mm -hmm. patiently, yeah. humbly? How do they train us to, to ask what's implicit here yeah. and what's going to be inferred from this? Mm -hmm. And I, I simply find that over time, none of them are a perfect guide, but together, a slew of these figures, they are going to be remarkable helps to my being yeah. a better exegete of scripture. Right. Yeah, that's good. Um, how is it, in, in your opinion, that Protestants, and we, and we really see this in the, particularly in the later 19th century and, and, and well into the 20th century, seem to have done so, such little work or a whole lot of not very good work on the doctrine of God? When, when if you go back to the reformers who were so good at drawing from the church fathers you go to the generation after the reformers you go to the reforms reformed scholastics um turretin i'm thinking of um who did this so well how did we get to a place by the 19th and 20th century where we where protestants weren't doing it well at all if they were even trying to do it right 
Yeah, I, I think that's a major issue. And and there's a more complex story than this. But yeah. Maybe I can point to a, a key thread that plays mm-hmm. a central role. It's not the only factor. Um, Protestants at that point are, of course, responding to a lot of things. And one of the, the moves that sets all of us up for later mistakes is when we assume the form of a bad argument. In other words, when I let my opponent set bad terms of discussion in, and, and maybe just say no or say the opposite of whatever they're saying. And in that time period, you've got enlightenment thinking, you've got the development of modern science and the question of, of whether there's a designer behind the world we see, whether there's design in humans. Of course, evolution's not new at that point with Darwin, but it's being marketed and, and encountered much more broadly than ever before. And so all of those are raising questions of how can we account for God if we can seemingly account for so many things scientifically? And this is where the idea of God of the gaps comes in. Oftentimes we say, well, God gets the gaps we can't otherwise explain. Uh, Intrinsic in that kind of apologetic argument and that kind of response to modern scientific criticism is too often allowing the terms of the debate to be set by somebody with that scientific framework, where really you see the point that God is an agent like other agents. Hmm. And if I can explain something by means of other causes, that means yeah. I, I can't say God's involved. Yeah. And at that point, you've, you've already given away the store hmm. in terms of something that's central to both the Jewish and the Christian notion of God. God is holy, holy, holy. God is, is, you know, the I am who I am. God is high and lofty. He's the holy one of Israel. Uh, he is transcendent, not merely qualitatively, um, but, but radically. Uh, he, is, he is not just a bigger version of this, that, or the other, but, but, but he is holy and altogether different. And that's been central to the thought of theologians in the second and third centuries, to Augustine, to a host of medievals, to the reformers, and the early reformed theologians of the post-Reformation era. And and that's really something that sadly was not thought about and addressed in quite the way it should have been in, in that modern period. And it sets us up for a lot of problematic issues where God gets interpreted like another character in the story. Maybe more moral, maybe a little more knowledgeable, you know, like a queen on the chessboard who can make some moves others can't, but still a piece on the board. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I, I think that's one key thread that that really gives the store away in too many ways. Yeah, that's really helpful, and it serves as a good warning for us going forward in that sense. Um, let's talk a little bit about theological method. And when we talk about theological method, as you mentioned earlier, what we're talking about is how, how we do theology. And, you know, one of your two new books carries with it the title, The, the Fear of the Lord. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the, the nexus between fearing the Lord and how we do theology, how we think through and how we talk about these things. Yeah, maybe it's helpful first just to say a quick word about what kind of fear we're talking about, yes. right? Because fear... Yes. Fear is something we experience in lots of ways and not mm-hmm. altogether positive. Yeah. Uh, and the Bible speaks of fear in different ways. Yes. So there is 
there is a fear that we're told perfect love casts out, mm-hmm. and that's the fear of trepidation, of yeah. God's going to judge me, of I'm doomed. Mm-hmm. And that's real, and some people should feel that if they're yeah. not in Christ, but that's something that Christians aren't called to. We're called to, to in Christ, experience life on the other side of that. But there's another fear. Um, Augustine and, and others have referred to this as a filial fear, mm-hmm. not a servile fear. And this filial fear is a fear of reverencing and respecting mm-hmm. God. We might say having a mentality that's always prioritizing God. Seek first mm-hmm. his kingdom, as Jesus yeah. tells us. And, and that means that the fear of the Lord can be the beginning of wisdom, the foundation of all our wisdom, if we constantly are mindful of God. And amazingly, we can actually forget that even when we go about theology. Yeah. And it happens in different ways. Theologians uh, draw on history, and we can bring the mentality of how we study historical figures otherwise. We study scripture, and we can learn the the literary critical methods that we might use on Shakespeare or Milton mm-hmm. or Sophocles. We can, we can take the toolkit from adjacent studies and just apply it theologically or scripturally as if it will, in every respect, work in reading the Bible and thinking as a Christian. And, and the, the reality is, while there's lots of tools that will serve us well, Mm-hmm. They make terrible masters because, <laughs> yeah. again, God is distinct. God is transcendent. God is not just another author, and God is not simply a mere character. And therefore, fearing the Lord in theology is being ever mindful. How does God tell us he'll make himself known? How does God tell us we ought to study the works of the Lord? How does God reveal to us the kind of character and virtue that we ought to pursue if we want to know him? How does God tell us about how we should listen to generations past and seek to to build from and learn from both their success and failure? How does God actually chart the the protocols and practices of theology, sometimes overlapping with what it is to be a good historian or philosopher or a good uh, literary critic? But oftentimes not quite fitting, uh, as you would elsewhere, because God is unique, and we want to honor that in reverence. Yeah, yeah. So you you have feet in in two worlds, closely connected worlds. But you know, you're a systematic theologian on on the one hand, but you also train pastors. Now those are connected, and they need to be connected. But they're they're also two different disciplines in in a lot of ways, though uh, though though connected. What? Before I ask you some questions just about about laypersons, I wonder what what do you say to your students who um, who are headed towards pastoral ministry mm. about why it is their pastoral ministry, the people they serve. Let's put it in those terms: the people they serve as pastor or are going to serve as pastor. Why do they need them? Why do they need their pastor to be good at theology? To be a thoughtful theologian, even if he never gets a PhD, getting a seminary degree, getting a graduate degree is significant. Mm-hmm. And and what do you tell these men, many of them younger men, um, uh, what do you try to communicate them about, about why the people they're going to serve need them to be faithful, thoughtful, careful, theological thinkers? Yeah, I, 
I have to describe why we refer to doing systematic theology mm-hmm. in particular. It's a strange word. It sounds like you put God in a box, which right. I hope sounds intuitively bad to anybody. So yeah. what are we about? What are we doing? And why does it matter? And I think, you know, the, the reality is everyone's a theologian. Most of us are going to, in this way or that, even as Christians, still be bad theologians mm-hmm. because our sinfulness will show. And so what we want to do is grow to be wise and sanctified theologians. And systematic theology Mm -hmm. gives you a toolkit or a set of protocols basically to work against your bad impulses. And and I'd suggest there's (laughs) there's several here. I mean, one is the first question is, what's the breadth of biblical teaching here? All of Mm -hmm. us are inclined to talk about our hobby horse. Yeah. or something that that was formative at the beginning of our Christian journey, or it's what we and our people are now doing battle over. Mm-hmm. And that can be important, and that can bless many people, but that also can be our worst enemy if we fail to see that that's not the only game in town and the only struggle. And yeah. uh, we've we've all been around that person who only talks about what they've experienced, mm-hmm. and they can't see that the Bible and the gospel address other issues, too, right. with the word and promise of Christ. Uh, so paying attention to the breadth, reading not just the New, but the Old Testament, not just the Gospels, but the Epistles, yeah. right? Uh, reading across and paying attention to the full range is crucial because all scriptures God breathed, and it's useful to equip the man of God for every good work. But if you don't pay attention to all scripture, you won't be equipped for every good work. Right. And, right. and so the whole council matters. Yeah. Um, priorities matter. Each of us, likewise, we can we can prioritize, and we will, based on the tyranny of the urgent, mm-hmm. or based on our autobiographical predilection. What 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 what's mattered most to me, or what have I struggled with most? As pastors, we face this. You know, you always think illustration and case study. I'm going to go into the storehouse of what real life circumstances I've dealt with. Well. Mm-hmm. That can be some of our greatest work, but that also can be terribly limiting. I haven't yet faced my senior years looking death in the eye, and so I can't tell a personal story of, of preparing for death, but some of my people need to hear that. Right. Uh, and so uh, I need to be alert to priorities Scripture may convey that, that go beyond the tyranny of the urgent. What appears mm-hmm. again and again through Scripture in both Testaments from multiple authors, useful for everybody, useful for people in these spots, um, we need that to be reshaped by Scripture itself, not just by our guesswork or our biography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's interesting. I live in, a, in an area where there's a very, very strong historical Anabaptist tradition. And so heavy Mennonite tradition. And by God's grace, we have quite a few former Mennonites that are members of our church and they have found a real home in a Presbyterian church. And it's been great to hear their stories of how they, you know, how the Lord really kind of changed their mind on those kinds of things. But, but I do find myself having to explain to people why systematic theology is a good term. And, uh, and, and I explain it very in in very much in the terms that you just did, and, and part of it just very simply by saying, um, systematic theology uh, helps us read helps us be better Bible people. Yep. Um, the big picture is it just it, systematic theology is not something we're seeking to add to the scriptures. It, it's it's a it's a means by which we hope to read the scriptures better. Um, yeah. And that seems to really resonate with some of these brothers and sisters. 
you know. Yeah, and I think we can just say, look, there, there are a lot of problems the church faces now and has faced through the ages, and the real problems aren't people not engaging the Bible. <laughs> Right. Those don't. Those don't. Those don't yeah. draw people. Right? right. We quickly ID those as bad, and so they don't <laughs> cause trouble. The real problems are where people engage the Bible badly. Yeah. And, and so it's not enough to just have a verse or read right. a passage. You've got to ask, how does this relate to other things? Right. Where does this? Why does this come up in Scripture? To what effect? Yeah. What language is used here? I mean, another, a third thing is how often the Bible uses common language, Koine Greek, yes. everyday terms like mm -hmm. redemption, which is from the slave market, right? Mm -hmm. Or adoption, which is from the, the family court, yeah. uh, to describe the singular work of Christ. And so we have to be alert to the way language we use elsewhere in life is being used here and often in very distinctive ways. Right. Lo loving God is not the same as loving, you know, art or a sport for your spouse. And so paying attention to the distinctive use of terms is crucial because so often our problems come in when I assume the way I use that word there is what it means in First John or in Matthew or Hosea. Yeah. The analogical versus the univocal. Okay. You know, yeah. yeah, exactly. And we've it's, got to develop an ear for that. Don't exactly. We? I just, I was in 30 minutes ago, I was driving um, from my office, the uh, back to my house and i've been listening to an audiobook jeff gwynn's new book entitled waco which is mm -hmm. about the waco siege and it's interesting i'm about um eight or nine chapters in and it's interesting how often they they reference the fact that david koresh quote knew the bible that man knew the bible better than anyone i've ever met over and over and over again this was testimony he could quote scriptures all over the place and it ended in a fiery inferno because uh, for all of the, the, now that's an extreme example, the, but the yeah. point is, is that bad Bible reading, bad systematic theology can be a disastrous. If it, if it doesn't lead you into a cult, it will at least fail to nourish your soul properly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Mis misunderstanding of the term kingdom or Reich is central <laughs> yes. to the Nazis doing what they do. That's right. And, and much more benignly today, all around the globe, there are people where misunderstanding of the word blessing. Mm. leads to radically wrong understandings right. of what it means to be a Christian and what to make of the experience of suffering in life. Right, right. Um, yeah. And so these things really do matter in very obvious, but also in really subtle ways. Exactly. And that that goes a long way, just I, I hope to just help people hear um, why systematic theology cannot just be the province of of the academy, but but needs to to be owned by by the church. Now, obviously, we we look to men who have really been set apart for this task and have put in the hours and the years um, to do necessary work on this. But the connection between uh, good theologians, the training of pastors, and then the feeding of God's beloved people um, is such a, a hugely important connection. Again, because I live in a highly Anabaptist community where so often very little emphasis is placed on the importance of, of, of learning um, in, in, and, and formal training for pastors. Right. And, and therefore, the God's beloved people aren't fed very well. And Todd, I think we could add to that, too. And I bet you experience this, especially with people at the university nearby. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but that's my hunch. 
As we see more people starting to encounter Jesus, the Gospels, and Christianity as a fresh idea, and as more of them have not been raised even to have basic familiarity with with the Christian religion, I, I would argue for missional reasons, systematic theology is all the more needed, precisely because you can't assume that basic terms like love mean what the average college sophomore will assume love means. Uh, John 3.16, while it can be on a cheek at a game, it will make no sense in so many respects if they don't have some basic foundations in terms of who God is, what it means to be human, what our problem is in terms of sin, and thus what God's love might actually mean and do. Um, so I think for the apologetic purpose of, of sort of our increasingly post-Christian age, systematic theology is all the more important. Absolutely. And and what you described is exactly my experience here in our community. And what is more is some people, I don't think you'll be surprised by this at all, but some people are really surprised when I tell them that ever since I was a young youth minister, and it's still true, the vast majority of questions I am asked by people who aren't churched are theological questions. Yeah. Um, they want, they, if they're going to ask a guy in ministry, they want us, okay, so what do you believe about God? Okay. Now what is this about Jesus? And uh, to this day, the vast majority of questions I am asked, people have theological inquiries and yeah. pastors have to be good at it. Yeah. Yeah. And even the moral questions, which I suspect you also get regarding things like sex and race and so forth, I suspect what they're after is not tell me the line. They know the Christian line. It's how does that make sense? Uh, why would that be good for anyone? Why would you find that, you know, to lead to a good life? It's it's those connecting issues, theological reflection behind uh, the moral call. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you, in terms of, you know, just what we're experiencing now uh, in terms of sexual ethics and, and gender and that sort of thing, th this is what what we're having to routinely and, and it's actually been a, a really good discipline as we communicate primarily with our with our students high school students junior high students and college students um since they're in a culture that does not more or less affirm at least the outward ethic of what the scriptures say on those things um for for the first time now you know the church just in recent just the last couple of decades the church has had to actually think through okay why are these boundaries good? Why are the boundaries that God has given us? Why are they good? They, that didn't have to be explained to me when I was in high school because we had the other things. We had the yuck factor. We had some of those other things. And plus, not a single one of my lost friends when I was in high school disagreed about things like homosexuality and gender. All of that's changed. Um, and now we actually have to have really good theological answers for your people in this because that's why they're going to ask you. You're a pastor. If they're going to ask you, it's because they want to, they figure you can tell them why the Bible affirms this. Right. I need to be ready for that. Yeah. One yep. last question. Um, every once in a while, I'll quote, you know, a theologian from the first five centuries, Augustine, one of the Cappadocians, somebody like that. And, um, and people will really afterwards say, that was great. Can you send that to me? And inevitably I'll get questions about, okay, so if I'm going to read one of these people from the first, first five centuries, where should I begin? You know, and they're not looking, you know, I, I don't tell them to go out and get the Hendrickson set of you know, anti-Nicene right. fathers or something like that, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but what if, if somebody's saying, okay, I like this whole idea of making sure we're tethered to our, to our actual history as, as a Christian church, 
what might be a great selection for me from one of these people that I can read and really be fed by and blessed by? Who, who are the first people you turn you, you turn people so, to? Yeah, there's in in one sense there are tons of great answers yes. that folks can can journey in, and more often than not they'll find something that'll that'll grip them. Uh, a great starting spot is with the the best of the second century theologians. There's a character named Irenaeus of Lyon, mm-hmm. and he wrote two great works, the smaller of which is called Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. Mm-hmm. And it's a very short book. You can get a great English edition. It's like 70 pages. So it's yeah. and they're small pages. It's not a, yep. an intimidating read. And he basically looks at what's the preaching you see the apostles offering in the New Testament. It's a great summary of what is the gospel. Right. And it's it's everything from the incarnation of Christ through his atoning work and resurrection to the giving of the spirit and the mission to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Those are the basics. And so it's a great synopsis of the New Testament. Yeah. The second part is a demonstration of how that fulfills what was foretold in the Old Testament. Mm. And it just models how your Bible is this remarkable, harmonious, surprising, uh, life-giving work where you've got people in all sorts of ways, centuries prior to Jesus, are already overtly foretelling and sometimes foresignifying or typifying things that that prove to be true in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It's Mm -hmm. a great read. It helps you get your Bible uh, and it's in a great little series that kudos to the Eastern Orthodox. St. Vladimir's Seminary has a great little series of of patristic paperbacks. If you'll go to Amazon, by the way, and look that up, the, these patristic paperbacks, what you'll hear Michael describing, they're, they're there. They're short. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't need to grow a beard and, and you right. don't need to become Orthodox, mind <laughs> you. But there are so many works that they have mm-hmm. have delivered to us in wonderful English editions that that are all of our heritage. Right. And they're not Bible. They're not perfect, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. But goodness, we're better off. That's right. If we're reading our Bible attentive to ways they will provoke us and prod us right. and pressure us to to prayerfully, humbly, attentively see things we otherwise wouldn't see. And even when we find that they're a little loopy at points, and let's be honest, we all are. Sure. uh, That too will provoke us Mm. to ask why and to think through the reason we have for the the hope we have. Yeah, that's really good. Well, uh, it's always fun having Michael Allen on with us. And uh, Carl and I love his work. And that's why we keep having him back on because he, he continues to write stuff that is so useful uh, for us. And um, if you will go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can register to win a copy of one of his new books, The Fear of the Lord, Essays on Theological Method. And uh, just go there, register to win a copy of that book. And while you're there, if you'd like to make a a contribution to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can certainly uh, do that also. Um, Michael, thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. I hope Carl gets bailed out and can I, join you again next time. I do too. They're, Glad to be with you in the meanwhile. There's Carl. a whole long story and we won't get into the details, but yeah, but yeah. Again, thanks to our guest, Michael Allen, and we look forward to uh, being with you all next time. Seasons don't fear the reaper, nor do the winds of the
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. One, two, three, four. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses, including two degree programs and Ph.D. supervision. Students can be enrolled at any time during the academic year. Still, in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, so Davenant Hall hosts regular residentials at the Davenant House Study Center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2023 classes running April to June is now open. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class, with a two-hour Zoom class with expert professors each week. Classes include a biblical theology of the sexes with Alistair Roberts, the Reformation in the Modern World with Brad Littlejohn, and more. Visit Davenant Hall com to find out more and davenantinstitute.org for an even broader perspective davenanthall.com